Mana 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 this is social discasting welcome to social discasting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest has a phd in neuroscience from indiana university and is currently an assistant professor of biology at DePaul university as well as an avid soccer lover and lover excuse me and staff writer on that very subject for SockTakes.com. Please welcome Nipun Chopra. Welcome. Hey, Brandon. Absolute pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm excited to talk all things uh, uh, life, science, uh, COVID, whatever whatever we want to chat about today. All right, well, thank you again for, for coming on. Like this is, uh, I'm so excited just to talk to you, but also kind of, you know, like we talked about briefly before, dispel information, get correct information, things that aren't talked about enough, maybe in your perception, just everything, honestly, related to COVID. And honestly, I got soccer questions too. But just to start off, how are you? I'm good. This was the, the question that I was dreading the most, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. A, uh, As we talked about, it's a tough one to answer in this moment. Uh, but Overall, I, I think I am good. I, I, uh, as your most recent guest said, kind of in a in a privileged situation here. You know, I still have a, I have my job, my family is healthy, I'm healthy. You know, so I consider myself very privileged during a time that not everyone I know has been extended those same privileges. No, absolutely. I, I know exactly what you mean. Just as somebody who it's that that situation where it's like, well, I could have it so much better, but I could have it exponentially more worse. And you just try to think about that, you know, and just it's a situation where nobody is nailing it or is perfect by any stretch, but it could always be worse, certainly. Just to kind of provide a little backstory, the reason I reached out to you to, to ask you to be on was because somebody had retweeted that I follow a thread on Twitter that you had regarding kind of giving a very digestible breakdown as to the two vaccines that are currently going through varied phases and trials at this point. And it just really helped me. And I thought maybe that could do the same for anybody listening. I know at the moment you're very hopeful about in what directions they're going. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. So they have met. Uh, so the way the vaccine development works is, you know, there are many milestones that vaccines have to to get to, uh, and so far these two vaccines, one is uh, from a company called Moderna. Uh, and the other is a collaboration between Oxford University and a company in England called AstraZeneca. Both their vaccines so far have met all the milestones that they have been challenged with. Uh, the biggest one remains, so the, the 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 top of the mountain still remains to be crossed. You know the the peak, uh, but everything else so far has uh, has been a success with, with these with these vaccines. From a, I guess, a timing standpoint, is this kind of on par with about when you were hopeful or expecting, or is the timeline kind of relative to whatever expectations we can have in this situation? Well, there are actually two answers to that question. The, okay. the first, the, the first answer is in terms of vaccine development per se, this is an extremely accelerated timeline, and there are some reasons for that, that we can get into or we can not get into. Uh, sure. But the second part of that answer is. Based on my own expectations at the start of this pandemic, this is still an accelerated timeline. And and to be fair, it's not gone through phase three yet. And some skeptics would argue that, you know, that's where the, the rubber meets the road, kind of uh, to mm -hmm. use a cliche. So we may still be a number of months, and, and we are a number of months away from having a vaccine available to us. But a lot of the things that happen during vaccine production that get delayed until after a phase three trial are already happening, which is one of the reasons why the whole thing has been expedited. Because, you know, we, we want to get all of us are looking, not all of us, those of us who believe in vaccines are looking for one of these vaccines or 
hopefully even both uh, succeeding and having them available to us in the late late fall, early winter, early spring. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. This is maybe a, a dumb question, but that's never stopped me. Is it from each phase, is there relative equitable scrutiny or is it more scrutiny as they go along? So the first, the early stages, as you might imagine, so phase one and phase two are a little more biased towards safety profile. So okay. phase one, basically, you know, you, you don't want to. So the way it works is when phase one, you're only testing the vaccine in a handful of patients, you know, between 10 and 50. Uh, 10 is probably on the wrong end, probably like 50 is a good estimate number 50 to 100 and what you're trying to see is when we give this vaccine to someone do they all of a sudden develop a heart attack and die you know like mm -hmm. or are there side effects simply a little bit of pain at the site of injury which is what we're seeing now once okay. they cross phase one uh, and you can say that it is efficacious uh, sorry it is safe in a small number of patients uh, even and in phase one, you know, you do compare to see that there's been some immune response. In phase two, you increase that number to, you know, around a thousand, maybe two thousand. Uh, both these studies had about between a thousand and twelve hundred volunteers in in these studies. Uh, and again, you look for safety and you start to look for specific endpoints which allow you to measure whether the things are happening inside your body that are supposed to be happening. So in other words, phase two allows you to get a better grasp on safety and an indirect measure of vaccine success. In phase three, now you're getting into the tens of thousands of patients. And now you start to answer the key questions, which is, sure, it is safe. We have indirect evidence, but do we now have direct evidence mm -hmm. that taking this vaccine will prevent uh, someone from getting sick or even will make their sickness much, much, much less dangerous. Okay. I mean, that, that does make, I mean, I was about to say that makes absolute sense, but yeah, of course it does. I mean, this is a tried and true process, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. the process through which science progresses and it becomes true or actually helpful and, uh, and long lasting. But you had said that this is an accelerated timeline. Have some of the things that have happened in terms of the acceleration, had there been like exciting breakthroughs for the future? of vaccine creation or science that have come out of this, like innovations? Oh, great question. So so the vaccine that um, the company Moderna is working on is what is known as an mRNA vaccine. Mm -hmm. And it is a uh, methodology of, uh, so uh, taking a step back, there are many ways that you can stimulate the immune system to protect you from a certain disease. Uh, for example, you know, if you give someone the measles vaccine, you're giving them a very a uh, weak version of the measles uh, virus, mm -hmm. which means that if you are exposed to the actual virus in the future, your immune system is already, you know, locked and loaded to fight off the infection. There are other, uh, that's the most traditional uh, method of vaccination. You know, it goes back to Salk and Sabin's very first polio vaccine uh, back in the 50s. So, uh, 1950s, that is. So, what Moderna is doing is a completely new method, uh, which is called an mRNA vaccine. And it uses a completely different way of attack of getting the immune system going. And it is, as things stand right now, there are no confirmed mRNA vaccines. Moderna has tried, other companies have tried, and they have not been successful. So if this is successful, it'll be the very first RNA vaccine. And there are some advantages to an RNA vaccine that make them something that holds a lot of promise. So to answer your question more succinctly, yes, it, this Moderna vaccine would be completely uncharted territory in terms of it being the very first mRNA vaccine ever 
brought through all the way through clinical trial uh, if it is successful. In the past, you said that this would be the first successful mRNA vaccine, and maybe the reasons were specific to each of those previous vaccines or the situations, but is there something inherent in mRNA vaccines or just by going through that route that makes it more complicated or less likely to work, if that makes sense? It's a great question, and uh, the honest answer to it is that I don't know. Okay, uh, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, there's, this is a little bit beyond my level of uh, expertise on this, and uh, I, it would be unfair for me to uh, speculate. Fair enough. I appreciate that. If anything, I don't want to spread inf- misinformation or anything like that, or even kind of run the risk of that. Yeah. Which, not so subtle segue, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> is there anything that you want to get out there to people that isn't being spoken about enough or things of, of like misinformation that can be dispelled just something in that vein yeah the one that keeps uh, there there are two or three actually and and you know about a month ago i wrote a set of myths and debunking them on my facebook account that kind of uh, went semi-viral at the time mm-hmm. and I, i'll basically use some of those uh, things here the first one which keeps popping up is that this is uh, you know just like the flu there are many ways to dispel that myth the best way is to look at how many deaths we are having beyond what we would expect at this point of year. So what uh, what that means is if we model the data for any year between January and July of that year, we get a sense of roughly how many people we expect to die given all other causes during a regular year, you know? Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is in uh, in city after city, state after state, country after country, our numbers of excessive deaths from that baseline is significantly high, which is suggesting that this is, which is confirming, I would, I would go to the extent of saying confirming at this point, that this is not the flu. Uh, it's it's what the scientists have been arguing for a long time. It's a completely different ball game, and we should stop considering that it is. And every metric we look at, unless it has been spun by Fox News or or Breitbart or something like that, or left for that matter, a far left wing outlet, mm-hmm. confirms to us that this is a dangerous novel. Thing that our immune systems have not encountered and we should be protecting the folks around us. That's the first one. The second one that keeps popping up is this idea of uh, this being, you know, a uh, of having uh, of lab origin. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, some people will say that this was either released from a lab in China intentionally or unintentionally released from the lab in China. And there really isn't any evidence to suggest, especially the former. So the former, at this point, we can pretty much debunk. There's no evidence that this is a man-made virus because, for one, if you wanted to generate a man-made virus, you could literally use the original SARS virus, which had a much higher fatality rate, and stick on this version of the spike protein, which makes it more infectious. And now, okay. instead of a mortality rate of about 1%, we would have a mortality rate of about 10%, which is what SARS-2003 uh, had. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense from a logical perspective. In terms of the unintentional release, again, there's no evidence of that as well. So that's the second one that I'd like to like to dispel at, at this time. No, I mean, that makes absolute sense. It's great to know just um, a succinct explanation of it because, again, you just read all these articles that have different variations, whether they're in-depth or just kind of more broadly and almost like FAQs related to these things and kind of where we're at. So that's, for me, certainly really helpful and good to know. But is there anything in terms of kind of, I don't know whether that's where we're at number-wise 
rise in terms of fatalities or actual positive cases. If we even, I mean, whatever accurate information we have at all, just due to some of the gatekeepers of these numbers at this point, that just to speak on or anything of, of more recent origin to speak on regarding COVID in general? Yeah, so, the, uh, and this kind of ties into another myth, uh, is the idea of how widespread this is. There are some suggestions in uh, right-wing, far-right-wing circles uh, suggesting that the best way to deal with this is do what Sweden did, which is forget the lockdown and let people be exposed to it so that we can reach this idea of herd immunity, mm-hmm. which has completely been misunderstood by folks who are making this argument. Because and, and there's twofold evidence for for my uh, claim there about the misunderstanding. Number one, all the data we have now with antibody testing suggests that about between two and ten percent of uh, a population in in any city has been uh, this is this is a paper that dropped yesterday on the new england journal of medicine uh the lowest rate was 1.1 percent and the highest i think was 6.8 or 9 percent which is in new york percent of people have been exposed to the coronavirus we expect herd immunity to be achieved for a virus like this around 70 to 80 percent which means we are nowhere close to herd immunity and you can see the number of people that have died and continue to die in this country mm-hmm. same thing when you look at sweden sweden's per capita death rate is higher than almost every country in the world additionally their seroprevalence meaning their estimate of how many people have been exposed to, despite of not having a lockdown is around the same it's about i believe it's eight to ten percent so they are nowhere close to herd immunity and they've had a sig- really really high death rate their death rate per capita is four to five times higher than their neighbors such as finland denmark so the other scandinavian nordic countries mm-hmm. so the idea of trying to get to herd immunity the hard way as we call it is demonstrably flawed ethically and medically dangerous and would lead to way way more deaths would lead to deaths getting closer to you know the high hundreds of thousands maybe even past the one million mark before we get to herd immunity so it's a complete misunderstanding of the risks that that seems to be occurring it does feel like unfortunately considering the implications of it obviously but this the term became a buzzword a buzz term yeah and then it just became co-opted and kind of weaponized in its own way to spread misinformation and it's a thing that is easy to remember it's weirdly as a word or phrase digestible Right. And then people just say it and it reaches this form of ubiquity that isn't even in any way accurate. So I can't imagine, though, just as just somebody in your position with the knowledge behind these things, how frustrating that must be to see things like this and just want to say something, dispel that and use, I guess, like, you know, Twitter and Facebook as some form of platform to get that information out there. Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. It is very frustrating. Uh, and, you know, I, I go through cycles of of being like, well, I need to be nicer and more collegial in my tweets about this stuff. Then I go through, you know, the the angry phase. I go through the subtweeting phase. Then I go through the like the absolute angry responding to people with absurd, uh, with pointing out how absurd their statements are. So I go through these phases every week and I have for a few weeks now, especially Mm -hmm. being part of the soccer community where there seems to be a, a, imbalance in understanding of the relative risks and benefits of playing professional soccer right now so you know i I appreciate you you noticing that and pointing that out yes it it is very frustrating and i appreciate my friends who you know have started to reach out to me before they share 
a questionable YouTube video or WhatsApp message to hopefully start to control this rampant spread of misinformation about COVID-19. That's awesome that they're doing that because it's so much easier to share something than it is to get an idea of the accuracy behind it. Mm-hmm. In a world too where the internet has gone to a place of not just like spreading misinformation, but consciously with these bad faith actors and just the content creators in general, it takes a lot of work to check the sources of the sources. Yeah. So that's why I was just curious because I can't imagine, especially when it's not like, well, that director didn't direct that movie. No, this is actual <laughs> life and death implications. You know, more than just the kind of superfluous pop culture. You'd mentioned to soccer, and I know that you're a staff writer, like we said before in the intro, on soccer, and that is a major passion of yours. Is that tied in any way to your interest or or vice versa in neuroscience and that you got your degree in that? Yeah, there is overlap. So my love for soccer was galvanized before I became a neuroscientist. So my my love and obsession with soccer predates my neuroscience academic interest Uh, but you know they have converged in the sense that i I studied in brain injuries and there's a constant conversation about brain injuries in sports such as soccer Mm -hmm. um so you know they have converged but so now they do feed into each other although it would be disingenuous to suggest that they did uh, early on as a soccer fan who a soccer fan first who is also a scientist who we've just talked about COVID and the implications soccer was the first major sport to come back Mm-hmm. And I think it was the Bundesliga. Was that the first? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. To come back. How did that make you feel? Because you have like this push and pull, I, I wonder. Not good. I still think it was a massive risk. Um, you know, I didn't watch Bundesliga. I didn't watch Serie A. But I am, and I, I won't watch even my team play in America because I think it's grossly irresponsible to play mm-hmm. uh, in America where you have 70,000 new cases every day and 1,000 new deaths last couple of days so you know but again there's that part of me that's just obsessed with the sport it's such an integral part of my identity that Mm -hmm. even though i disagree with it in premise i am watching the premier league uh, because my first love for in in sport was manchester united and i just cannot you know the, the first game they were back i didn't watch and i was on twitter basically refreshing my feed the entire time so i have this obsession that i just cannot seem to quench uh, so I am watching the Premier League, uh, even though I think it's ethically questionable to support these leagues right now, uh, you know, putting these players in harm's way. But I won't be doing that with any other uh, soccer this year. I thought about this earlier, just with earlier on in this entire situation of like the power of tribalism and how a lot of people just identify with these different teams or whatever the case may be. And not having that has got to be really tough. And I say that as somebody who follows a lot of sports pretty closely. And with the NBA situation, it's like, oh, it's cool to have the NBA back, but at what cost? And is it really worth it in the end? And can't we just like, it's okay to take a year off. And I say that, and that's an oversimplification or it's an oversimplistic perspective because there are also just these people that have livelihoods, so they're not going to be able to meet that. So it's just easy for me to say, because I'm just not affected in that I won't be able to watch a thing I enjoy watching. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything, every word you said herein. And what I will say about the taking the year off, that's exactly been my stance and that it shouldn't be on us fans to bear the burden of, of a failed season. It should be on mm-hmm. the owners. You know, the owner should suck it up and face the financial issues for one year of, of no sport. Absolutely. That's what I've been saying all along. They should not be cutting salaries or especially of staff and uh, employees who aren't paid particularly well. So it shouldn't be on us to face the financial burden. It should be on the owners. 
100%. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's like the thing that they talk about where the reason everybody wants to get into sports ownership and owning a franchise is regardless of the sport is because franchises do not depreciate. Like it's exactly it is just a winning lottery ticket, which is why everybody vies to get in there because you just fail upwards regardless of what it is. Yeah, a great example of that is MLS, right? So in 2010, uh, 2009, sorry, Orlando City FC became an MLS franchise for 11 or 10 million uh, US dollars. Mm-hmm. Now the franchise fee is 300 million dollars. So you know, that's that's in a decade. So in a decade, they've had a 30-fold appreciation of their, their, their teams. And they're all, most of them are billionaire owners. Yeah. So I have zero sympathy for an, for an owner who says, you know what, I can't absorb a couple of million loss in salaries this year. I have zero, zero sympathy for that that scenario, that situation. And uh, I don't really understand when folks suggest that the owners need to survive because they're doing fine. They're, yeah. This is, as you said, it's not a depreciating value at all. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I completely agree. And the idea of like the implication, if not there are some people overtly, outwardly saying those poor billionaires. Exactly. Is truly, truly wild to me. Just the idea that you can even relate to them on any level, let alone feel for them emotionally or financially. It's like, yeah, so many of these owners seem to be more and more overtly resentful, if not inconvenienced by the people that work for them. And yeah, just as a sports fan, it's just very disheartening because it's a thing you love, but like, I don't always feel good about that love. Yeah. And and so it's just like you have to reconcile those things and that it can be tough, especially right now where it's just like these are people, they have families, this is a pandemic and we are a nation that is now we have a nation that refuses to quarantine, but has been quarantined from the rest of the world. And that is a wild thought to me. Yeah, the everything that's happened here from the beginning of the pandemic until now makes the American uh, experience kind of its own weird ecosystem. Uh, And, you know, even within America, there's such a heterogeneity to how the pandemic has been handled in, in you know, in different cities and different states by some competent uh, leadership and some not so competent leadership reacting to questionable leadership at the federal level. And Mm -hmm. that is bleeding into sport in America as well. So, you know, one of the reasons Bundesliga ultimately, uh, even though I have to admit I was against it at the beginning, went off without uh, any issues is because during between the time that they came back and uh, until the season ended their test positivity rate they uh, kept reducing their testing kept increasing they they were socially distant they were careful they had clear leadership from the top um, and none of those things has been true uh, in most states in america yeah it was at least responsible relative to how irresponsible other countries Exactly. have been towards this. And so it's definitely not a, a one-to-one thing of, well, they're doing it, so we can do it. Be- exactly. Because we haven't earned that on any level at this point. And again, it's just that it's, I guess it stands to reason because it's a business, but it doesn't justify it, obviously. But these are leagues in America right now that are not driven by humanity. They're driven by dollars and cents. And that's all I see isn't who is being put in harm's way and the implications of that long-term. They're just thinking short-term of, I don't have money coming in, which they still do through ungodly amounts coming in through so many other revenue streams outside of just the one-to-one of broadcasting and sport. But all they care about is that I'm not making as much as I once did. Exactly. And it's a highly, highly selfish 
selfishly motivated out, outlook uh, for people who can actually afford to be more altruistic during a moment that uh, that is uh, a once in a century experience. Absolutely. No. Um, and it's also just uh, the thing that that bothers me. I mean, one of the more broader things just about all of this, especially, I mean, not even towards sport, but just in general, is that it is such as much as we, obviously we can't predict it, but it it is such short term thinking. It is doing these things in the it's like why why can't we do do the smart thing now for the long term as opposed to just doing what we want to do without any consideration for that and that i know that that's not a it's not a f overly fair thing it's an emotional thing and it's a frustrating thing a thing out of frustration but like it did it didn't have to be this way yeah, I think that's perfectly summarized. It really didn't have to be this way. Um, there was a um, there were mistakes made across the board in the beginning, uh, you know, which have led us here. You know, there's no reason for so to give you a, a, a slightly unfair comparison because countries are different, scenarios are different, populations sure. are different. But just to as a frame of reference, uh, my family in India has been in a strict lockdown since March. And when I say, uh, what late, well, late March, and yeah. when I say strict lockdown, I mean, they haven't left the apartment, not going to the grocery store, wow. not going to restaurants to get takeout food, not going out for a run in this on the street, on a proper lockdown, except for emergency personnel. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is given the population density in, in, in cities in India, the, the likelihood of super spreader events is very significantly high. Mm -hmm. So what what annoys me about what's happened here stateside is given how m most people uh, uh you know cities like new york and chicago notwithstanding most people live in already socially distant environments in this country and uh, based on that premise initially i thought that the the outbreak in the us would not be as bad because people can afford to be socially distanced you know and and be perfectly fine but yeah. because there is such an obsession with individual freedom and individual idea and individuality, uh, to use a, a cliche there again, you know, we have led ourselves into a moment where 140,000 and counting uh, human beings are dead and hundreds and tens of thousands have recovered uh, who will possibly face lifelong uh, health consequences of this virus so you know it just frustrates me to no end at how this has been handled uh complete in in in, in ways that were entirely unnecessary and have led us into this moment of abyss that should not have should not be have been the case yeah no i i can't imagine yeah to your point of just that your perspective just as a scientist in general being here and experiencing this, let alone the context of having your family and knowing what they're doing and and how they're handling an awful situation in a responsible and frankly necessary way. Because that, it's just, um, I don't know, it, it, it's bad enough just knowing how it is here, let alone knowing what it could have been and what it still could be. But still, I don't know I don't know. I just like, when, when are we going to get it? When are we going to wake up? And I just, I don't know that answer because it really doesn't feel like we're doing the bare minimum. And 
in a very reactive way. But even then, I, I'm just not hopeful. And it sucks. I, I want to be hopeful. I, and I'm not. And you used a perfect word there, which is reactive. You know, the way to deal with these problems was to be more proactive, was to, as you said, think about the long-term consequences, right? But what did we do? We, we only looked at the short-term implications. We only thought, well, you know, my 401k is crashing this week yeah. or has been for the last 10 days, so we need to open up. What's, what'll ha what's the worst that could happen if you open up? Uh, you know, we, we had like leaders of states and governors and mayors suggesting that people who were dying, you know, well, they didn't say that they were going to die anyway, but pretty much suggested that the people who were dying were, those deaths were acceptable in some way. You know, mm -hmm. because they were elderly or immunocompromised, uh, and that it was that that our handling of it was okay, and it's just such a uh, poor understanding of the dynamics of this virus. And as you say, it is entirely reactive. We we finally have leadership uh, from the top suggesting we should wear masks, and that's where it's August. Sorry, it's almost August, and we finally have leadership suggesting we should that masks uh, wearing masks is a good idea in the last yeah. two or three days. Whereas we've known for at least, we've been talking for at least three months about how the, the usage of masks helps you prevent uh, spreading the virus to other people. It may not prevent you from getting the virus. So it's something you're, again, you're doing for other people, but it yes. comes back to that individual freedom versus collectivistic responsibility. And that has been the failure of, of uh, the American response to COVID-19. I mean, the fact that I'm frustrated and some days incensed and I'm woefully ignorant to the degree by which it didn't have to be this way without having, you know, the, for example, the scientific background that you, you do. So yeah, I can't imagine, ha you know, <laughs> I can't imagine the double-edged sword of having that knowledge right now. Well, that. can you imagine what it's like to be, for me, it's, it's again, a moment of privilege. All I do is, sure. you know, just bitch about it online, right? It, it's, <laughs> it's not really, I'm not inconvenienced in any way except for frustration. Can yeah. you imagine being a nurse or a healthcare uh, provider, yeah. you know, a doctor who is, you know, not seeing his or staying away from his family or having to, you know, create a hazmat experience in his, his or her garage because they're worried about passing on the virus to their kids. Can you imagine being Dr. Fauci who has to deal with the, you know, the, the, the insane, insane ramblings of a madman. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine being one of many epidemiologists who have been talking about, who have basically predicted how this will play out unless we are proactive? At every step along the way, they've said, if we don't do this, X, Y, Z will happen. And they've been laughed at, mocked, and told that you know they weren't elected, therefore they're there their uh, scientific expertise is not as valid as some idiot who just watched a video on YouTube. Yeah. So, you know, again, for me, it's not a big deal. For me, it's just moaning online. But the people who really are fighting this, I, I extend massive sympathy and frustration towards them, for, for them, in, I guess in the words frustration, uh, because of their, that they are the ones being proactive and are having to react to poor decisions uh, from from the people who should be helping them. No, you're absolutely right. And as eye-opening and, and awful as a thought, I mean, it's just the reality. But no, that's a, a great way to look at it.
I don't really know how to end this show. Well, oh, let, let me end with a little bit of hope. How oh, please that? do. Yes. No, that's, that's, <laughs> yes, let's do that. So, you know, when I, when I do these podcasts, I, I often, you know, people ask me like, well, how is this going to play out? And, you know, I, I want to give you, and not just hope that's fake hope. I'm going to give you real hope. Okay, and the, re- the, the reason I say that is, you know, the, we use the word unprecedented, but this isn't unprecedented. You know, when a uh, hundred years ago, when the uh, 1918 H1N1 pandemic occurred, uh, we estimate mil- about 100 million people in the world contracted that virus. And we believe anywhere between 20, you know, um, I'm sorry, I said, I said that incorrectly. We believe about a fourth of the world's population contracted the virus, and we believe anywhere between 20 and 100 million people died during that time. Wow. So, so you know, it is, it is not unprecedented. And and after once we recovered from the virus, we had the roaring 20s, uh, and things got much much better. We will be on the other side of this soon. I have a lot of faith in in our scientists. I have a faith. I have faith in uh, vaccines. I have faith in uh, uh, the drugs that are coming online, including remdesivir, which is already showing some uh, some uh, uh, positive signs in in dealing uh, in treating the disease. So we will get to the other side of this, and I think the timeline is actually more optimistic uh, than I than I had towards the beginning of this pandemic. I wouldn't have. You know, I wouldn't have said that we will see any return to normal until like end of 2021. But I really do think if the vaccines come online, we start to return to normal life, uh, you know, in late spring 2021. Uh, with, with what I mean by that is initially when the, the vaccines come online, they should only be given to people who are at high risk. And I hope that will be towards the late fall of 2020, mm-hmm. which means that the rest of us should be able to get the vaccine in late spring 2021 as as manufacturing ramp ramp uh, ramps up so i do have hope we w- it will get better we will be on the other side of this and uh you know we we will we'll overcome that genuinely made me feel better <laughs> so thank you <laughs> that whew, that's a really nice thing to hear and to think about and to hopefully ride high on for the rest of the week at the very least. Is there anything just before we wrap up that you want to point people toward just before we end it? Uh, no, uh, no. I mean, I, you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like and approach Oprah 7, but I, I'll warn you, it's mostly uh, uh, snarky soccer tweets and <laughs> uh, and angry COVID tweets. <laughs> it's really informative, though. I mean, both from a soccer and COVID perspective, honestly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's really good stuff. So thank you again for your time. I've loved this. I think a lot of good information has been said by you. So I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Good luck and take care. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please wear a mask. Be well. Stay safe. Bye.